why don't you start turning to 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. We'll be reading a little bit of a long passage this morning. We've deliberately started a little bit early because I've got a lot of stuff to say. Um, From 1 Corinthians 6 verses 12 to 20 and then skipping to 1 Corinthians 7 verses uh, 27 to 31. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries. Uh, We'll be putting it up on the screen later. So, for everybody, for visitors, good morning. Um, You're in for a bit of a treat this morning, kind of. Um, Over the last few weeks, if you come here regularly, you'll know that we've been going through the Ten Commandments, um, God's loving boundaries given to the people of God uh, during Moses' life many, many years back, which which we are seeing, aren't we, that are still relevant and challenging today, very challenging, very serious, very culture-clashing. Uh, very real, very releasing. The Ten Commandments. I've been loving studying some of this and hearing some of the other guys speak on it. And so this morning is another big, big biggie. This morning we're going to be talking about sex. Sex, yep. Uh, Please don't adjust your hearing aids, you heard me correctly. Sex and marriage and sex. I can see some of you blushing. Sex and marriage and singleness and sexuality and stuff like that. So parental warning. Uh, if, you want your, if, you, if you've got your kids in and you want them out, now is the time to do that. Your call. I'm not going to be particularly graphic or anything. Uh, we've asked Simon, though, not to be here this morning because we just felt he was a bit too little. <laughs> Yeah, Sarush has got earplugs then. I asked my non-Christian friend Tony, you might remember him, we prayed for him some years ago for healing for his blood cancer. Um, He's not not a Christian, he's a very good friend of mine. And I said, oh look, I'm doing this talk uh, on the the seventh commandment. I'd like a little bit of wisdom. And he said, marriage, I thought it was a word, but it turned out to be a sentence. But he was just kidding. That's not what we're going to be talking about. Don't go away home thinking that's the only thing you've learned this morning. You see, we live in a day, don't we, where sex and marriage and sexuality has gone a little bit pear-shaped in a lot of parts of the world we live in and a lot of the places we live in. What with the films we watch, the songs we listen to, pornography everywhere, marriages falling apart, sexually transmitted uh, infections. I'm a GP. Uh, seeing this regularly going rampant, living together without committing to marriage being the norm in our society, depression and suicide associated with issues uh, arising from sexuality and insecurity and singleness, Um, where abortion is on the increase, where all sorts of stuff is getting taught to our kids in school under the banner of tolerance and equality. That's what this world is. That's what's going on in your worlds. Joshua Harris, a church pastor uh, who writes a lot about this stuff, says, I've come to believe that lust and sex may be the defining struggle for this generation. Is that what you think? And so this passage this morning, the slightly long passage that we're going to read, is the Apostle Paul laying foundations amongst a new set of converts in the city of Corinth where, quite frankly, when it comes to sex and sexuality, anything goes. They're up to all sorts of stuff. 
getting into a real mess and confusion, just like us and the world we live in today. So listen up while we read it. Let's read it, shall we? 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, and 1 Corinthians 7, 27 to 31. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both of them. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us up also. We have a hope beyond just now. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee, run away, get out of there from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of God the Holy Spirit who's living in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Single, don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you from this. It's quite funny, really. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for this passage, I thank you for the clarity of uh, the Ten Commandments that we're going through. And I pray, Lord God, for grace this morning. I pray, Lord God, that we will hear your word, that we will be open to your word, Lord God. I pray where this is going to be difficult, because it is going to be difficult. I pray where this is going to be difficult. I pray, I pray that your mercy, your compassion floods in. I pray, Lord God, that your forgiveness and transforming power floods in. I pray where, this, the, where, where we live in a world, that uh, a culture that is so, so different to the stuff that is written in the Bible. I pray, Lord God, for your beating heart to beat alongside us. I pray for compassion. I pray for mercy. I pray that there is no condemnation from this word, but actually a God who loves us. I pray for your love to flood into everybody this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, be with me as I preach this word. I pray, Lord God, that I'm true to your word. I pray, Lord God, that we can be a church that welcomes everybody, loves everybody, deals with everything in Jesus' name. Amen.
So I guess the big question in our day, which seems to baffle many, and the church gets a lot of bad press for it, is this question. What, what's so wrong, church, with sex outside of marriage? What's the big deal? That's the big question. Should, Chris, should, the, should Christians just get off their high horses and say it's all okay? Get with the times, church. That is the big question of our day. And what I hope to show you, persuade you if you like this morning, is that the Bible, rather than being outdated and irrelevant and boring, which a lot of people think when it comes to sex and sexuality, actually is quite the opposite. The Bible, Christianity, gives a view of sex and sexuality in the context of marriage that is so beautiful and glorious and logical and life-transforming that it actually rises above the other cheap and belittling attitudes and practices that we see all around us. That's what I hope to show to you this morning. How on earth are you going to do that, Raj? Well, watch nothing under my sleeves. So the things that I want to uh, put to you this morning from this long passage is, firstly, the Bible's view of sex and sexuality is staggering. God loves sex. Let that offend some of you for a moment. Secondly, the Bible's view of singleness and not having sex is also staggering and exciting. It revolutionizes how we handle the stigma of being single. And finally, I want to show you that the Bible's bigger picture of God's ultimate future eternity, what we've been singing about and praying about this morning, radically reshapes and revolutionizes our view of these things right here right now. So that's where we're going. So firstly, the Bible's view of sex is staggering. God is not a party pooper. We've just read, uh, what we've just read in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians is outrageous. I want you to get that this morning. Let me explain. In these uh, two chapters, the Apostle Paul quotes, what did I do with my water? Oh, there it is. The Apostle Paul uh, in the, in the, uh, uh, here quotes two very popular views that people had at the time about sex, which are essentially the same today. Two views. The first was this, chapter 6, verse uh, 13. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. That's getting at the view in the time that sex is just an appetite. Like when you feel hungry, you eat. When you feel thirsty, you drink. When you feel sexy, you sex. Just do it. It's completely natural. It's your right. We're sexually free, aren't we? View one, sex is an appetite. The second view is this. We didn't read about it this morning. You'll find it at the top of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. It says, now for the matters you wrote about this letter in the letter from the Corinthian church to the Apostle Paul, now for the matters you wrote about. And they wrote, it is good, yeah, for a man, to have sexual, for a man not to have sexual relationships with, his, with a woman, yeah? This is the opposite view of sex, you see. This view states that sex is dirty. Yep, you can have sex if you want, but those of you who want to be spiritually pure, 
don't have anything to do with it unless you really have to. It's defiling, it's unclean. Don't talk about that here. We're in church, Raj. Don't tell the children. Are the young people here this morning? View two, sex is dirty. Shh. Sex is an appetite. Sex is dirty. Two, two views that we read about in this passage. Your views, if you really dig deep, and quite radically, quite shockingly, for his time and hours, the, the Apostle Paul says no, no, no to both. What does he say? So we can read it in verse 18. He says, flee, run for your lives, flee from sexual immor immorality. It's quite different, actually. He doesn't say flee from sex. He doesn't say have sex. He doesn't say have sex whenever you want. No, he says flee from sexual immorality. The word pornea is the actual word where we get our word uh, pornography from, which essentially means having any form of sexual activity with anyone who you are not married to. And that means same gender sex, it means dating sex, it means one night stands, it means living together sex, it means pornography, and the many other variations that we see today. Issues that affect many of us in this room. Pornea. Paul says, run from it. Have nothing to do with any kind of sex outside of marriage. Or putting it positively, sex is great, is wonderful, woohoo! In the context of marriage and marriage only. Now, before we get into this passage, we need to define what God says marriage is. We're living in an age that lacks this definition, actually, and so many of us are shaped by the power of what seems culturally right, or what the law says marriage is, or what our friends and family thinks. And, and in this confusion, we can sometimes go to the Bible looking for verses that's to support what we think and do, rather than looking to the Bible to find out what God thinks is right and what he wants us to do. That's very important. We need to handle the Bible well. We need to watch out for that. So what is the biblical, biblical understanding of marriage? And I've looked and I've searched and I've actually spent years doing this. Um, and so this is kind of a, a potted version of lots of stuff. And as I see it, marriage boils down to two things, covenant and consummation. Covenant and consummation. You could open it up into a whole lot of other things, but briefly, covenant and consummation. Firstly, covenant. An example of this is in Malachi 2.13. It says this, It is because the Lord, Jesus, God, is witness between you and, your and between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Biblical marriage isn't just a legal thing, but a whole new way of thinking, acting, a lifelong binding oath, an agreement, a promise never to be broken to your spouse, overseen by who? Jesus, God himself. Covenant is very different from the many types of consumer relationships that we see out there now, consumer relationships, people scared of committing to marriage, people living together, people having affairs while married. These are often consumer, supermarket 
relationships. At the supermarket, I get what I want, and once I'm bored of it, well, of it, I'll drop it. I'll get something else, I'll get something better. Bottom line is this, in a consumer relationship, my needs, my personal needs, are more important than the persevering, enduring, lifelong relationship and promise itself. It's a consumer, in a consumer relationship, you're saying, you are just to me, partner, or I'm out of here. But, the, but, but a biblical covenant is very, very different. In a, covenant, in a covenant relationship, I'm saying, I will adjust to, adjust to you because I've made a promise. Just like Jesus' forever, never-breaking, always-reliable covenant promise to us. In biblical covenant, the relationship is more important than just my needs and feelings. And you know what? When two people enter this kind of covenant-enriching relationship, gosh, you've got something altogether different. You're not a puppet on a string anymore. There's a safety and security in that relationship where you're not having to perform all the time, but rather you can be yourself. You can be who God's created to you you to be. There's space for change. You, you're free from the, pre, pre, uh, the pressure from all that marketing, always marketing yourself and selling yourself to the other person. One woman, one woman uh, summarized it really well about her living together with her partner, and she says, I felt, it w- I felt like I was on a multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. That's what she felt about living together. So biblical marriage is a secure, enduring, glorious covenant commitment. Secondly, it's also about consummation. In Genesis 2.24, which remember is what God says, Moses records, Jesus reiterates, and the Apostle Paul confirms in his letters, this isn't debatable sideline theology, this is crystal clear, it says a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, a woman. There's the covenant. And the two shall become one flesh. That's the consummation. This always gets me at the beginning. This always gets me when I read, think, when I read this and really think about it. At the beginning of all things, God provides Adam a ravishingly naked woman who didn't own any clothes. Who said Christianity is repressive? In fact, while we're on with that, Proverbs 5.18 says this, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. It's in there. Some of my friends ask me, do you really take the Bible literally? To which I always give them this verse and say, it makes sense sometimes. Just read the Song of Solomon. That'll make you blush, you young guys. These words are God-breathed life to us. God doesn't have a problem with sex in marriage. Quite the opposite, actually. But there are boundaries. Marriage which involves covenant and consummation, the Bible says, is between a man and a woman. Because God created us male and female. The Bible says we're not just persons who determine our own 
gender identity. As, as often some of my patients get into a real turmoil and depression over. No, God created us male and female, and a man marries a woman in biblical covenant. Now, yes, there are civil variations to this uh, in the world, um, what the world might call marriage, and those lines will no doubt get more and more blurred as the years goes, goes by. But, 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 civil arrangements, civil marriages are not biblical covenant marriages. There is a difference. Now, I know that will be hard for some of you, quite a lot of you here, to take in. As a church, we welcome everybody into the presence and life-shaping truth and power of Jesus. It's a continuing long journey, actually. And hear this, Jesus' grace is sufficient for everybody. And also, hear this, the cost of following him isn't necessarily fair, but difficult. If you have a problem with some of this, chat to me. This isn't the place to go into these things on a one-to-one -one basis or, you know, personally. Chat to me if you have difficulty with this. Some of you will. Um, if you're struggling with this, listen. We still love you. More importantly, Jesus still loves you. The Bible tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that's biblical marriage, a beautiful, lifelong, lifelong, safe, enriching, transforming covenant between a man and a woman where consummation, sexual union, is integral to that joining, joining together. God doesn't have a problem with sex. You do. And so getting back to the passage, the Apostle Paul, as we said earlier, identifies two views of sex. Sex is dirty, remember, or sex is just an appetite. And the Apostle Paul says no to both. both. Why? Because he sees God's view of sex as something much bigger, much richer. And as we said earlier, sex is great in the context of marriage and marriage only. And the key to get this, we're just going to spend a few moments on this, the key to getting this, um, why this is so, is to understand the huge, enormous term, one flesh. One flesh. See verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute, now he's not talking about the kind of prostitute that we often think about, um, well, not often think about, You give a lot of secrets away when you're preaching. No. That's a joke. No, here he's referring to the person that you're having sex with who isn't your wife or your husband, the person who is prostituting his or her body. That's what it means by prostitute. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. That term, one flesh, is massive. It's crucial. It's staggering to understand this. Now, often we read this and think, well, one flesh is just referring to Adam and Eve going under a tree somewhere and having sex. But that is not the case. He can't only be thinking about one flesh as just having physical sex. He can't be. Why? Because if, 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 if he was, all he'd be saying in verse 16 is, 
do you not know that he who has sex with a prostitute has sex with her? If one flesh only meant the physical sexual act, then that's what the apost- that's all the Apostle Paul is saying, isn't he? That's not worth saying. Look, the term one flesh here, and even body or the word soma in the Bible, is often used to describe not just physical human vessels, but personhood, who you are, everything about you. And so when Paul describes becoming one flesh, he's talking about a personal transformation that is going on between two people, not just sex. That sex is a portrayal of the wholeness and togetherness that is going on in the whole of our married lives together. That it's a vehicle, a tool, if you like, for declaring the closeness, the covenant that we've been talking about, the intimacy, the promise, and self-giving that marriage life is all about. It's a much bigger deal. And get this, nobody, nobody thought about sex so richly as this up until now. They just thought, like we do, sex was dirty or sex was an appetite. John Hosier writes, uh, one of our Bible teachers in New Frontiers, he writes, to be one flesh, I love reading this, um, these few lines, to be one flesh involves a whole life together. A man and a woman talk together, share together, dream together, eat together, sleep together, and often have children as a result of being together. It is their whole lives together that make two people one flesh. There is a total belonging together, a union that cannot be broken unless it's by God. And as we see marriage like that, it gives us such a sense of dignity and purpose. And he's obviously getting excited by it because at the end he says, Amen! Paul is saying that sex is designed as a radical way, hear this, as a radical, amazing way of self-donation, giving your entire person, your heart, to someone else in a way that results in personal transformation and deep soul nurture of two people in covenant love together. Nothing less. Don't mess with it. Don't use it out of context. Don't belittle it. Don't destroy its life-giving qualities. Because if your whole life together isn't saying that, then sex will only hurt others and leave misery, and you will carry baggage into relationships from then on. Question, after all of that, is your view of sex that high, that rich, that glorious? Because it should be whether you're married or not, whether you trust in Jesus or not. Why is sex outside of marriage so wrong? Why are we to flee sex from sexual immorality? That's why. Not because we're boring. Not because we're party poopers. No, because we get it. Jubilee, don't be just dumb sheep following others, like I used to do for many years. Don't be just a puppet on a string. Don't be just a slave to your feelings or culture or insecurities. Don't let others walk over you. Think. Think this out. Pray about it. First point, Christianity gives a view of sex in marriage which is altogether mind-blowing. Anything less won't do. Anything less destroys. 
So your next question might be this. Raj, are you saying that if I never get married, I've had it? All this great stuff about one flesh being personally transforming, soul-nurturing, life-giving. If I don't get married, I'll never experience that. Where does that leave me? High and dry from the sounds of it. No. The Apostle Paul says no. Second point. Not only did Christianity give the world a view of sex that was revolutionary, but also Christianity gave a view of singleness, and he's assuming singles don't have sex, not having sex, that the world had never, ever known about before. Chapter 7, verse 27 and 28 says this, Are you pledged to, be a, are you pledged to a woman married? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment single? Do not look for a wife. You don't need to. It's not the priority that you make it or culture makes it. Don't let it control your life. That's what the Apostle Paul is essentially saying. This is probably the most shocking thing ever said about singleness up until now. Really. Why? Because in Paul's time, the family meant everything. There are some cultures here this morning, I came from a similar culture, who also has this view. The Apostle Paul lived in a traditional society. There was no such thing as individual honor and success and achievement. You were primarily who your family was. Family, honor, success, and achievement was what was important. And therefore, there was a great pressure to be married and have children and progress the family, bring honor to the family, and a great stigma if you were single. Stanley Howard, a theological historian, uh, wrote this, one of the clearest differences with Christianity and all other religions was Christianity's idea that singleness was a completely desirable way to be. Paul and Jesus both say some will choose not to be married, and that's a good thing. This was revolutionary in ancient society, and the implications have seldom been appreciated. Since Jesus and Paul, it broke the absolute necessity of the family. Now creating a family was not something you had to do. Singleness was okay. Amazing. Paul is saying you don't need sexual love to be fulfilled. fulfilled. In fact, it can't do that for you in a meaningful, sustained way anyway. You need Jesus. Ernest Becker, in his uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, uh, oh, I think it was called The Denial of Death, uh, says this, we are the first society, our society, who has, has a widespread belief that there is no ultimate future. That they, we just live for now, in other words. There has never been a society that had such an understanding of the insignificance of human life. Never. And as a result, there has never been such a society that has put so much emphasis on finding our one true love. The self-glorification that human beings need in our innermost being, we now look to, not, not in God, but in the love partner. I was listening to a song about it this morning. Through our love partner, we want to, rid, uh, we want to be rid of our own fault our own faults. We want to be rid of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence has not been in vain. In short, we want redemption, nothing less. 
If you're single this morning, you don't need to be a slave to love and sex and culture and media. That is not where you draw your wisdom, your joy, your identity and security from, as Sarusha said to us on a number of occasions over the last few weeks. You are in Christ. He will always provide what you need. He is your ultimate joy and lover. Now you have him. In heaven, the only marriage we'll see will be that between us and him. As Christians, we have a much higher view of sex and marriage than anyone else. And yet, despite that, we're also much more free from the need for it than anyone else. Because our security and our worth and love doesn't depend on it. It depends on Him. So the Bible's view of sex and sexuality is staggering. It's revolutionary. Also, the Bible's view of singleness and therefore not having sex is also staggering and revolutionary. Finally, Jesus has won for us through His death and resurrection an eternal hope, a secure future which reshapes our whole view of sex and singleness and marriage altogether. We have a life-shaping, joyous certainty in God's forever future. Do you really know and believe that? Because that affects everything we think about and do all our lives, including our sexuality. This is the bigger picture, Jubilee. We have eternity in our spirit, as I said this morning. And so to end very quickly, three things about that eternal perspective that will shape us, that will help us get through. Firstly, we have a hope in God's ultimate family. All of history is moving to a day when we will be in deep, deep, deep unity and friendship with one another. A world not broken by torment and unfaithfulness and loneliness and isolation and conflict. A world where we will really, really understand that we are God's children, brothers and sisters together, family. Our marriages and single relationships are not just islands. We are together in all of them. We live them out together. We are interdependent on one another. We are more and more living out God's ultimate family together. Marriage, um, whether we're married or single. Community outside our marriage and kids is essential to hear this. Community outside our marriage and kids is essential to our relationships and marriage. Do you see that? Many of you, you see, are still on the edge of community. That's an unhelpful, unfulfilling, and often dangerous place to be. I've seen it time and time again. Many of you have excuses for that, often good excuses. But let me tell you, for, let me tell you, for everything else that is going on in your world, community is essential to that. Yes, it's hard work. Yes, it's time-consuming. Yes, it challenges our idols. Yes, your situation is different. But there's no excuses. There can't be. Do you see that biblically? Are you convinced? Jubilee gets stuck into the community life of the church deep, deep, deep. That's the place where you will grow. That's the place where you'll be fortified and meet Jesus time and time again. Our eternity will be together. Don't neglect it now. It will protect your marriages 
and relationships, relational decisions and temptations. Community helps that. Second, we have a hope in God's ultimate journey, a long journey. Ephesians 5.25 paints the classic, magnificent, ground-shaking picture of what marriage means to God. It says this, husbands, love your wives, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing by her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Ephesians 5 tells us that sexual intimacy in marriage is a glorious analogy. It's a picture of Jesus' loving, giving, soul-nurturing, transformational relationship with his church, you and me. Marriage depicts the, the wonderful but very long and hard journey that Jesus is taking us on of failures and temptation and then repentance and then grace. For those of you who are married, there's going to be, as you know, one conflict after another. Hannah, Chris, Neville, Laura, get ready. Paul is absolutely realistic about the fact that as wonderful marriage is, and I really love marriage. We've been married for so many years now. Since 2003, work it out. Um, as, you know, uh, marriage, it's a long and tough and sometimes grueling journey. It is, isn't it? That morphs and moves and changes us. Watch out, be real about marriage. This is how Stanley Howard again puts it. There is a false, I love this quote because it gets me thinking. There is a false assumption that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This overlooks a very crucial fact and that fact is this, hear this, that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom it is we marry. We just think we do. And even if we do marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing it is, means that we will not be able to stay the same person that we were after we entered it, than we were, than we were when we went in before. Marriage changes us so much that you can't be sure before you marry who the person will be that you're married to in years to come. The great challenge of marriage, therefore, is learning to know and love the stranger to whom you often find yourself married. That's very thought-provoking, isn't it? The late Lewis Smedes uh, put it in a different way. He said, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we married, and each of the five was me. Marriage is declaring to one another that I am tremendously excited about your future and the ultimate journey that we're on, especially during the rocky times. There is always hope. Another quote, C.S. Lewis, he says, he can make the feeblest and filthiest of us, if we let him, into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature 
pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror that reflects back to God perfectly, though on a smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. In hard seasons, through difficult situations, don't ever bail out. Stick with it through thick and thin. Do not commit adultery of any form. Don't be deceived about what you read and hear and listen to. Watch out for, watch out for the devil's whispers. Keep close to God and each other. Always flee jubilee, flee jubilee from sexual immorality. Run for your life. And finally, our hope is in our ultimate lover. There's a good bit at the end. In, see verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies... See in verse 15 and 17, which is between that bit we read in the middle. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And then verse 17 says, Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him, God in spirit. The bookends of one flesh sexual union in this passage, in marriage, is union and intimacy with God. Very important. In John 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, uh, who has had lots of failed relationships, he is basically saying to her this, you've been looking for the water of life, absolute fulfillment, security, joy in human love. You've been looking for the water of life in romance and sex, but you're looking in the wrong place. Jesus is saying, unless you make me your one true love, you will never find what you're looking for. Unless you make me your one true love, your whole attitude to love and sex and romance and marriage and singleness will be completely distorted. If you're not a Christian here this morning, get this. This is important. This is life-shaping. This is real freedom. Bottom line, Jesus is saying, unless you make me your one true love, you will never know love at all for real. The gospel, the joy news of Jesus, tells us that sex and marriage is a dim reflection of what's it going to be like when we fall into the arms of our greatest lover, Jesus, on the final day. On the cross, Jesus humbles himself and gets down on one knee and proposes to you, if you like, I love you. Not in wishy-washy words, but in action. Do you see that? I want to be with you on an adventure together for eternity. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's the lover we need before, above all else. That's the lover we need above everything. And it's that truth that mends your, my broken view of sex, sexuality, marriage, and single, uh, uh, singleness, and, um, and our torrid histories, past and experiences. Do you get it now? Do you really get it now? Does that inspire you, Jubilee, to live the life that God is calling you to, us to? Not easy, not always seemingly flat fair, countercultural for, for sure, we've said that, but, but, pure, 
beautiful, rich, free. Jubilee, live it out. Tell others. Don't get huffy. Talk to me about it if you need to. Today if you need to. Let's have a bigger vision of what God has for us in marriage, sex, and relationships, and singleness. It's great to have some of the young guys in this morning. I wasn't sure whether that was going to happen. But this is a big deal for a lot of you. And how you live out there is declaring what you believe and who Jesus is. You are taking him on a journey out there with you. As I've said to you on numerous occasions, you are bumping Jesus into people, as we say with our kids. Wherever you go, this is very important. Be pure. Be strong. Be together. Keep, keep good Christian friends. Let's stand, shall we? I'm going to pray if the band can come up. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a wonderful God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're an exciting God to be on the great adventure of life with. I pray, Lord God, this morning for people who don't trust in Jesus and might find some of what I've said a bit difficult. I pray, Lord God, the grace of God as they hear these words. I pray, Lord God, that you'll soften their hearts. I pray, Lord God, that they will rise above what they've just heard and seen in the media, but actually come to a truth that really makes sense. Pray, Lord God, that for people who are struggling right now in these situations, lots of people here, I pray, Lord God, that you fortify us, you fill us, as Paul Catrell said so helpfully this morning, you fill us with your Holy Spirit. That is the beating heart of God in us, to live the pure life. I pray, Spirit of God, that you will shape us, that you will change us, that you will confront us, and that you will hold our hand and take us on the journey. I pray, Lord God, also that we will be a church, not of condemnation, but of grace and love. I pray, Lord God, more and more, that this church will be a church that welcomes everybody, that the church is a hospital for sinners, you and me. Thank you, Lord.